Well, welcome. Glad you're all here this morning on this dreary Mother's Day. I was going to say beautiful Mother's Day, but if you have a puppy and you have to walk her every hour and a half or so, not a fan of rain today. But anyway, there it is. Um, I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team at New Hope Chapel, and we're doing a continuing series on um, all of the different passages in the Bible that deal with women and, uh, and, and, and men and the relationship there. Um, and so that's what we're doing until, and I have one more week to cover, and then Steve will be doing a session um, on the fifth week because I have to go to a um, writer's conference. So anyway, that's where we are. So, um, okay, so we're going to uh, be covering Ephesians 5, 18 to 33. It's the last half of the book of, Ephes of the chapter 5 in Ephesians. Um, and so that's the passage we'll be on today. But I want to start off telling you a story. I have a lot of online friends um, that have um, talked about uh, the women's issue and, and how maybe they were burned by the church at one time or another. And, um, and I asked for their stories when I was writing my book because I wanted to be able to show how when bad doctrine gets carried out, the damage it can cause. So anyway, I had a friend, his name is John, and he was raised in a Christian home, but the biggest spiritual influence that he had was his grandmother. And uh, she often talked with him about and how uh, loving God meant obedience to his word. And she practiced what she preached. Through the years, he watched her live out her obedience by submitting to his grandfather, because she thought that's what, what that was all about, and his abuse. So she was abused for many years, living in a terrible home, but she thought that's what God's will was for her, just like she th thought the Word of God said. So eventually, John fell in love. He got married. He married a woman who believed in Jesus. But when he became involved in a church, she wasn't real comfortable with it, so she kind of hung back. Now, the church leaders felt that was really inappropriate, and they told him one thing, get your wife in line. And he said, that's when I started fighting with my wife. They even convinced me that my wife had demons, specifically Jezebel, and that she needed deliverance. And I was dumb enough to believe them, and even dumber enough to actually tell her that during a heated argument. My marriage almost ended. Our home became so explosive that I had no choice but to back off and reevaluate my views. I realized that if this model of marriage truly was God's design and intention for us, it shouldn't be accompanied by so much friction. Now, you're probably not surprised that some elders in some church said that because we all know there are places like that. Um, fortunately, not at New Hope. But, um, but where did the elders get that idea? Well, I think from several passages, but I think the most likely passage they were thinking about was Ephesians 5, the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. But does that passage dictate a hierarchy in marriage? Is it a husband's responsibility to rule the household and keep his wife in line? Well, we're going to take a closer look at Ephesians 5. We're going to go past a superficial read. I've heard some of the scholars say, I prefer a plain reading. And I thought, okay, that's disingenuous because there's a lot you have to do to figure out a passage and not just read it once. So we're going to find things that are going to... Um, make the interpretation of keeping your wife in line very unlikely. And we're going to see something very different than what was modeled for my friend John from in his, in his early years. 
So preachers often skip verses 18 to 21 and they go straight to verse 22 and start their sermon there. They start with, wives, submit to your husbands. But doing that picks that verse out of context. And always, when we do that, it's a very dangerous thing. So we're going to start at the beginning of Paul's section here in verse 18. So let's take a look at the passage. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing and making music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, we're going to take this one on. Let's pray. God, please guide my words this morning, and please guide our hearts to the truth. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us as we study the uh, very words of, of him and that we would be able to be transformed even as we read. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so in the Greek grammatical structure, I, had, I actually had to learn how to diagram in Greek when I was in seminary. Tell me enough in English. But anyway, um, it, it, this is, he starts a section like this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? Because we already have the Holy Spirit in us, and we had him since the day we believed in Jesus Christ. So what is he talking about being filled with the Spirit? Um, you know, one of my friends said, I have to pray every morning for the Holy Spirit to fill me because I use him up the day before. And I thought, you know, she was well-intentioned, but I thought, you know, no. <laughs> you can use up God? Don't think so. <laughs> think about it just for a minute. I think what's happening here is Paul is comparing something. And when he does a comparison, it's really good to look at what he's comparing and we can get the idea from it. And he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So he's comparing getting drunk with wine to uh, being filled with the Spirit. Okay? So, now th think about this. What happens when you're drunk with wine? The wine starts dictating your behavior, right? I'm sure none of you have been drunk. But it happens. It happens, and all of a sudden, you're saying things that you wouldn't normally say. You're doing things you wouldn't normally do. 
I mean, and of course it goes from, you know, dancing on the table with a lampshade on your head all the way to beating up your wife. I mean, there's a whole range of stuff that happens there. So, but that's what happens when you're under the influence. Well, I think what he's saying is don't be under, like, just like you would be under the influence if you were drunk. You need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And he needs to dictate your behavior and influence you in positive ways. Does that make sense to you? It does to me. So um, I don't think Paul is making a statement about alcohol. I think what he is making is how we live in the Spirit. So Paul follows this command, and he tells us four ways that being filled, being filled will look like um, in believers as they follow the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, it doesn't show up in a lot of English translations, but in the Greek, he uses four participle phrases. So you can just list them, bing, 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 bing. And participle means an ing verb. So instead of speak, it's speaking, right? So let's take a look. at So be filled with the Spirit, and then he tells us four ways. Speaking, ing, to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Next one. Singing and making music, that's two verbs, but it's, it's, a, it's a verb phrase that's talking about the same thing. From your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, submitting to one another out of a reverence for Christ. You see it? Four phrases that's talking about how you are filled with the Spirit or showing that you're filled with the Spirit or cooperating with the Spirit who's filled you. Um, however you want to think of it. But speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and submitting. Now that's verse 21, um, the submitting to one another out of the reverence for Christ. And then in the next phrase, um, Paul then gives two, or next part, he gives two practical examples of how to be submitting to one another. That's the title, or the, the, the main idea of this. And then he tells wives to husbands, and husbands, love your wives. Two examples of submitting to one another. And we have to keep that context in mind, otherwise we're going to go all the wrong directions. So I think it's two sides, wives and husbands, it's two sides of the same submission coin. He's expressing it in different ways, but it's all about submission. So what does submission mean? Well, I used to think it was simply meant obedience. Aren't we cute? I, was, I wish I was that skinny still. But anyway, here's Steve and I. And, you know, when Steve and I were, were getting ready to be married and we wrote our wedding vows and then we decided we needed to read them to each other. So, I don't know, a couple weeks before the wedding, I had mine, he had his. And I started reading mine and I used the word obey. And Steve stopped me. Don't say obey. I said, it's in the Bible. He said, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And so I, I think I did end up saying it. Do you remember? Anyway, didn't happen because what happened is Steve wisely thought of us as a partnership, not him over me. And the marriage has worked beautifully because of that. So, um, and he pointed out to me at the time, he said, well, Paul writes to children to obey their parents, but he uses a different word. The first word um, is, uh, 
hupotasso, and I forget the second word. I didn't write it down. But anyway, totally different word when he's talking to children obeying. And the thing is, it's in the context of that first line, which is everyone should submit to each other. So why would obey be the next thing? It doesn't even make sense. Um, you know, Steve, a few years ago, we were going through Colossians, and I don't know if you remember, but he called the little boy up on the stage, and he had him sit on a stool, and he asked him how old he was, and he said five, and he said, you know, what grade are you in school? He said kindergarten. And Steve said, whatever the word submission means, I can do it for him, and he can do it for me. Five years old. And he's right, because we're to be submitting to one another in the church. Now, uh, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the verb does not immediately carry the thought of obedience in the New Testament. Rather, the, the, the uh, dictionary said, the general rule demands a readiness to renounce one's own will for the sake of others, to give precedence to others. Let me read that to you one more time. The general rule demands a readiness to renounce one's own will for the sake of others, to give precedence to others. There's a passage that Paul wrote, which the word submit is not in there, but what he writes is submission. Let me read it to you. It's in Philippians. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. The spirit of that passage really does um, find, get a good meaning for submission, putting the interests of others above ourselves. So with that in mind now, what submission is, let's take a look at the first example Paul gives of mutual submission in the context of a marriage relationship. And this is an example of everyone submit to each other, right? Okay, so he begins with the wife. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do in the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So, again, context is submitting to one another. But here's the thing. You see how I've got it in brackets here, submit yourselves? In the earliest manuscripts, the word submit is not in that phrase. It borrows the meaning from the phrase above it, which is submit to one another. Okay? So it's, it's not there um, in the earliest Greek. And there are two words that, um, talking about Christ as the head, there are two words uh, that get translated into the English word head. The first word, heads, RK, is used as an absolute authority to be obeyed, kind of like a general or government official or something like that. But Paul doesn't use that word. He uses the word kephale which can mean either an actual physical head or somebody that um, is, indicates um, being in a position of risk, out in front, serving those who follow the head, like an officer leading his troops into battle. So that's a different idea than just someone from on high ruling over somebody. So two words, and in, uh, Paul uses the latter. So there's a quote that I love from Gilbert Bilzikian, and it's what it says. Whenever Christ is upheld for the husbands to follow, it is not his power, his lordship, and his authority that are presented as the traits to emulate, but 
his humility, his self-denial, and his servant behavior. So whenever you see some, the husbands or whoever saying, you know, be, be like Christ, be ahead like Christ, he's not, and he, Paul qualifies that because he says it's the, it's the one who, um, you know, it's the head of the church, his body, which he's the Savior. Well, how, what did he have to do to be the Savior? He had to give his life. So that's what he's talking about, that a husband do that. And then Paul talks about uh, another example of mutual submission in a marriage context, which is the husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without strain or wrinkle, stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So the husband is to be emulating Christ. He hinted at it in, the, in his instructions to the wives, but he, um, he now goes into what Christ did. So I made a little list of all the things that I saw in that passage, what Christ did. So how was the husband to emulate Jesus Christ? Well, what does he say about Christ that he's supposed to be emulating? He's the head of the church, his body. And by the way, that head can also mean the word source. It comes from him. Okay, Christ's the head of the church. Christ gave himself up for her to make her holy, uh, the church. He cleansed the church through the word, and he presents her so he could present her without stain or wrinkle or blemish. And then he says, in the same way, husbands... So I started thinking, well, how do those things translate into the way a husband would act if he was emulating Christ? And these are what I came up with. This isn't from the Bible. This is Julie's guess. He would be ready to sacrifice his needs in order to meet hers. That's what Jesus did, right? He would be spiritually supporting her, encouraging her growth, nourishing her, like, like uh, Paul said about um, Christ. And then finally, enabling his wife to serve others in the service of Christ. So he's a support. He's not a ruler. And so th that's what he said. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul defines what he means when he uses the word love. Husbands, love your wives. And this is what he says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now think about what Jesus did. Not seeking its own benefit, not keeping an account of the wrong suffered, humility, self-sacrifice. Sounds a lot like submission to me. Both of these people, wives and husbands, are examples and flesh out what Paul meant when he said submitting yourself to one another. Love and submission, two sides of the same coin. And when they do mutually submit, Paul says, and catch this, this is really interesting. For this reason, two people mutually submitting, that's in brackets, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. 
However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So I'm looking at this quote, and of course it must sound familiar to you because we just did Genesis 2 a few weeks ago. And the quote was given right after God had created woman, and Adam took a look at her and said, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Right? So excited to have this relationship with this new creature. And then the, then the author or the writer of the book says, for this reason, um, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, why is Paul quoting something from the creation story way over here in the New Testament in Ephesians? Well, I think it's a very telling thing that he did that. Because when sin was not in the world, and we talked about a few weeks ago, there was harmony, there was peace, there was a kind of relationship every one of us would like to have with a spouse before sin. But when sin came in, it perverted all of God's design and it turned it into a hierarchy. And that was not God telling them what to do. That was God describing what had happened to the relationship now that they'd introduced sin. Now what's Paul telling them? If you're mutually submitting to one another, husband or wives and husbands, then you're going to go back to what it was like before sin. Why? Because Jesus redeemed us. He pulled us out of that oppression that sin had over us. Paul tells us in Romans, we're slaves to sin until Christ. But afterwards, when he gave us a new, he made us new creations, now we have the potential to be able to not be ruled by sin, but make choices that would, God, would be God's ideal. And I think one of those choices is conducting a marriage as a partnership. And when we do that, we're going back to before sin. Why would we keep pushing this whole uh, husband over wife thing when Jesus erased that sin for us by taking it on himself on the cross? So I, I never really understood that whole idea of this, this new creation thing going on in Genesis and why Paul was... But yesterday it just clicked for me. Of course. He's saying this is it. You can go back to before sin because Christ has taken care of all of that. Pretty cool. In fact, the only time that Paul uses the word authority concerning marriages is early in the book, and this is anywhere in the New Testament, it's in 1 Corinthians 7. The wife does not have authority over her body, but her, the husband does. And likewise, the husband also does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So here's my thought. If in the most intimate part of marriage relationship, the lack of authority a mutual lack of authority um, is, is happening, then I think we can assume that mutuality, submitting to each other, should pervade the rest of the marriage. It just makes sense to me. And of course, that's very good news for today. Because when the husband and wife work together, each loved, each valued, each respected and appreciated, the marriage is better for it. So what? Remember my friend I just told you about the beginning who was talking about um, he was told to get his wife in line? Well, that wasn't the end of the story, thank the Lord. Um, after researching scriptures for himself, and we're talking probably at least Ephesians 5, if not others, John was brought to a new understanding by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, 
He no longer felt it was his responsibility to be in charge. So they began to practice mutual respect, mutual um, self-sacrificing love for each other. And that relationship went from violent and caustic, it turned into something much healthier and more reflective of the Savior that they both followed. This is what he told me. Now we actually take turns leading. She leads on some aspects of our lives and I lead on the others, according to our strengths. We make the big decisions together, like the decision to uproot our family and move last summer. But I think the biggest change is the one within myself. It's the part where I look at her as an equal. She is my equal, and I know it with my innermost being. And this is the last part is what he read. I had to put that in a quote here because you just have to read it. Now I pity those men who remain encumbered with a hierarchical marriage view. If they would just step back and let their wives come into their own, instead of suppressing and controlling them, they would find their lives are so much more blessed. And understanding a truth always brings freedom. Mutual submission that Paul commands in Ephesians 5 is God's way to the healthiest of marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage and what Paul was teaching in it. Thank you, Lord, that we have freedom in you. We are no longer in captivity of sin, but we have been set free, and we have the potential to be able to make decisions and act in ways that sin will not direct. Um, thank you, Lord, for raising us to a new life. Thank you, Lord, that um, we can reflect you in every relationship if we follow these guidelines and that you will be seen and you will be given glory. In Jesus' name, amen.